Scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 6, the first eight verses. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 9. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. May, Lord, your word bring us to Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ to a life that is Christ-like. Christ in us, Christ for us, Christ through us. May we, Lord, be your people, conformed to the image of your Son. And may you, by your Spirit, work through your word to accomplish this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. The monomyth, the hero's journey, is the prototypical story arc of every movie that you've possibly watched, every book you've probably read. It is the story of a hero from a small town, his parents, a mysterious background. He goes on a journey, an adventure, and on that adventure he faces many challenges, many difficulties, and at some point during that journey he hits rock bottom. It looks as all hope is lost, he's about to be defeated, everything is about to end, and bam, whammy, you've got the redemption moment. It's... It's the, the moment that makes your heart soar in a movie. The underdog was about to lose. He was about to, to be defeated. And then, whoo, Gandalf the White and the army comes tumbling over to save the day. The old baseball players come out of the cornfield, the field of dreams. Why am I sharing this with you? Because that monomyth 
is the story of the Bible. It's the story of redemption. The reason why all those stories hit us in the fields, they make us experience that, uh, that uh, moment of, yes, that's it, yes, you know, Rudy, is because that's the way God created us. God is the story writer of the mono myth. The story of redemption. And what we have here in these few short eight verses is like a, a compact version of the entire story of redemption. In a few moments, we are seeing that and fast forward, we're seeing it sped up, you know, like those two-hour videos that they shrink down in time so that you can see the whole process of them building a cake or putting up, a, you know, those kinds of videos. That's what Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8 is. And Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8, I think, captures that moment of the story's journey. When it seems that all is lost and the hero is laying on the ground, he looks as if he's been defeated and bam, redemption comes. And so our theme this morning is, when all looks lost, God gives more grace. And boy, if we don't have the moment in our lives to hear a message like that. And so, we have three points this morning. The first is, judgment is coming. The second is, heroes that are zeros. The third is, grace is given. So let's look at that first point. It covers the first Three verses. And just so you know, this has got to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the book of Genesis. So bear with me. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with men forever, for he is mortal, he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. Um, the first question that we need to answer is, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Well, many commentators today still agree with the ancient rabbis and early church fathers who said that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were heavenly angelic beings who came to earth and had unnatural relationships with human daughters. Some of these argue then that the offspring of these unnatural relationships are the creatures identified in this passage as the Nephilim in verse 4. And what I want to argue today is that this interpretation is problematic for a few reasons. The first is the Hebrews took for themselves wives is the reason why the NIV translates this verse as they saw that the women, the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. But biblical data that we have indicates that angels or heavenly beings do not marry or have generative powers. Matthew 22, verse 30, when Jesus was asked about the resurrection by the Sadducees trying to trip them up, remember, the Sadducees asked hey, if this man marries this woman and the man dies without having children and then she marries the brother and the man, that man dies without having children and she marries 
the other brother, all the way down to the seventh brother, who will she be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus' answer was, you don't understand the resurrection because in the resurrection, we will be like angels. And the implication there is, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Angels don't marry. And uh, second, this is problematic because all scriptural references used to identify the sons of God with heavenly beings, particularly in the Psalms, comes outside of the Pentateuch, which is its normal or natural context. So the immediate literary context provides no support for that interpretation. And if someone were simply reading Genesis and they heard sons of God, they would not immediately assume that this is speaking about angelic beings. So who are the sons of God? Well, it's more reasonable to see in context that the sons of God are those of the line of Seth. And the daughters of men are descendants of Cain. So what is being spoken of here is the attempted destruction of the seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman that would come to crush the seed of the serpent via intermarriage. And if you think that intermarriage isn't that big of a deal, and, and why would that be such a prominent aspect of God's increasing or the increasing of sin on mankind on earth and God's desire to, uh, to destroy it, well, then you need to read more about the history of Israel. Because there's quite a few times when God's people get mixed up with women from other places. And if Moses wasn't there to say, no, God, don't destroy them all. To intercede and to be someone who was pointing to Christ. The people of Israel would be no more. So I want to defend this with a couple reasons. First, it fits the context of the book of Genesis so far, seeing the unfolding of the promise of Genesis 3.15. We are seeing, up until Genesis chapter 6, the explanation of these two lineages, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent through the line of Cain and the seed of the woman through the line of Seth. And what appealed to the sons of God was that the daughters of men, we read, were beautiful. This is physical attraction alone. It's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 3.6 when we are told that the woman saw that the fruit was good. In fact, if you read, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them. It's the same order of events that Eve had when she saw that the fruit was good, pleasing to the eye, and she took it. And so fleshly attractions point us to the same priorities the descendants of Cain had. And so what we're being told now is that the descendants of Seth, the godly line, is now falling into immorality, falling into worldliness and fleshliness. Also, if the end of chapter 4, verse 26, is to be translated as I um, attempted to do, defend for us, that then men of the line of Seth began to be called by the name Yahweh, or they began to be called the sons of God. Uh, this would mean that we already have, prior in the narrative of Genesis, a description of the line of Seth being called by the name of Yahweh, being called the sons of God. 
And number four, the consequences of the marriages between the two lines is found in verse 5. These marriages polluted the entire population and have a damaging effect on the seed of the woman. Throughout the Bible, this continues to be a means by which Satan seeks to attack and destroy the seed of the woman. We need to understand here that this is not merely about typical types of lineages. That is to say that somehow Seth's DNA is more godly and he passes on that godly DNA down through his descendants. No, it's the fact that God is choosing through the line of Seth to bring the promised Messiah. So an attempt to destroy that line, to blur that line, to obliviate that line is an attempt to take out the promised Messiah that is to come. And so because of this intermarriage, we read, God say, then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, or my spirit will not with, remain with or in man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. Now, like I said, misconceptions or various interpretations abound on this particular passage, Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. I'm curious how many of you have heard this verse, Genesis 6, chapter, uh, Genesis 6, verse 3, as describing that God would no longer let men la- live past 120 years. Show of hands. How many people heard that? I grew up thinking that's what it was. God's like, that's it. You only live, boom, 120 years. But the bizarre thing about that interpretation is Following the flood, men kept living past 120 years. In fact, it's quite rare, but it still happens today that people can live past 120. And so, when God says, my spirit will not contend with, remain with man forever, it it probably refers to the divine spirit of life. God is saying he's going to take their life away. He's going to withdraw life from mankind. And the reason for this is because man is mortal. He's sin. He's sinful. The condemnation is coming because man is flesh. He's corrupt. His sinfulness has continued to increase. But the caveat here is his days will be 120 years. This is not God saying he will now only let humans live to 120 years. What God is declaring is that if man does not repent and turn away from his corruption and sin... In 120 years, God is going to bring judgment upon them in the form of a flood. The 120 years is a warning from God. Judgment is coming. And this functions as a prophetic paradigm of overall eschatology. Think of what Jesus said about the flood, Luke 17. He said to his disciples, the time is coming When you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And so, when God says, 
He will know he has 120 years. God is not saying, I'm limiting man's life to 120 years. He's saying, in 120 years, judgment is coming. This is their chance to repent. This is their chance to turn back. This is God's version of when Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, 40 days. Hundred and twenty years they have. Hundred and twenty years Noah has to preach to them, to warn them. In this first point, we're reminded that the way of the serpent is to live by sight and not by faith. When we see that we are called to live for the great and wonderful glory that is being revealed in us, that cannot even be compared to the suffering we are experiencing now, God has something greater for us. The way of the serpent leads to the coming judgment. The way of the Savior is to a renewed world. And don't be fooled into thinking that everything is normal and just going on like it always has been. And there is something to be said about this pandemic. If there is something to be said about alerts going off on our phone telling us that we are in a stay-at-home order or stay-at-home advisory. If there is something to be said about COVID-19 statistics rising and going up. If there's something to be said about, about people threatening. If you go and you spend time with your family at Thanksgiving and if you intermingle families. If there is something to be said about all of that, it is making us aware that God is here. God is waking us up. God is reminding us the judgment is coming. Many people who are easily lulled into the comforts of their everyday life cannot be shaken awake. And there's a lot of shaking going on right now. So my prayer is that we would know that the future that awaits us is a glorious future, but also in this season, when our lives are being shaken up and, our, and, our, 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 and the way that we are experiencing things is becoming increasingly difficult and trying and, and, and nerve-wracking, that we would also be reminded that there are people out there who need to know that judgment is coming and that the way to get away from that judgment, the way to be freed from that judgment is to find salvation in Jesus Christ, the greater Noah. The one who took upon himself the flood of God's wrath. All right, but what about these heroes that are zeros? Oh, the Nephilim. Do not YouTube the Nephilim, okay? There are so many YouTube videos conspiracy theories about the Nephilim. Apparently, Nephilim and flat earthers go hand in hand. They like each other. Who are the Nephilim? I'm going to give you a straight-up answer, and this is definitive, okay? You could take this with you. You can take it to the bank, and the next time you're talking to a flat earther about the Nephilim, You've got this in your pocket, okay? Who are the Nephilim? We don't know. (laughs) 
But we do know some things, okay? Once again, I told you that a, a pretty historic argument is that the Nephilim are the offspring of the angelic beings mating with the women on earth. Well, one reason we can say that the Nephilim are not the offspring of the intermarriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men is seen in verse 4. In verse 4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Well, what are those days? And those days are the days when the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. And so what verse 4 is saying is that the Nephilim existed prior to the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. In those days, the Nephilim were there on the earth and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. And so the Nephilim were there in this period. So who are they? The etymology of the word is unknown, but many say it's tied to the word nephal, which means to fall. It's one of the only Hebrew words that I can actually remember because it rhymes, nephal, to fall. It's helpful. So uh, these could be called the fallen ones. That could be the, the word... It's derivative, the fallen ones, the Nephilim. Um, later on in Israel's history, when they would go into the promised land and the spies would spy out the land, they would say that the sons of Anakim are there and that the Nephilim are there and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And so the idea is that these stories about the Nephilim was that these were these great men, these were the giants, these were the legends of old, the men of renown. And that these great tall men like Goliath and like others that they saw in the, the promised land brought to mind this concept, that brought to mind these stories about the Nephilim. Yet, we are told something important about the Nephilim. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. They were men, not crazy angelic hybrid giants who roamed around on the flat earth. They were men, heroes of old. But this is what I want us to think about when it comes to the Nephilim. There's a, not, there's a lot we don't know about them, but we are told that they were heroes they were men of renown. They were the legends of those days. But even these Nephilim, who became legends, men of renown, they're only considered heroes from the earthly perspective. They're not like Enoch, who walked with the Lord and was no more, because God took him away. These heroes were zeros. Because despite all their heroism... They could not keep the judgment of God from coming, and not one of them could save humanity or even themselves from the flood that was coming. So what is your definition of a hero? Who do you look up to? Who are you looking to as your savior? 
Because the people before the coming of the flood put these Nephilim up as their heroes, the ones to look at, the celebrities of their days. And they probably said to themselves, nothing bad can come to us. Look, we have the Nephilim with us. The Nephilim are our heroes, the men of renown. Look at the great and mighty acts of, of warriorism and heroism that they are accomplishing. No destruction could ever come to us. We are, we are invincible with the Nephilim with us. They thought wrong. And that's a good lesson for us. And be careful who your heroes are. Because who your heroes are reveals what, what future you're placing your hope in. And the only future we should place our hope in is the one purchased by the hero who died as a criminal. Jesus Christ. The Nephilim have come and gone. They are spoken of only as a passing historical reference, legends, myths of old. The name of Jesus Christ we praise forever and ever. The true and final hero, the one all others are based upon, the one the monomyth is about, place your hope in him. Because in his moment of weakness, when it looks as if all was lost, hanging on the cross, dying, his body taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb, and his disciples hiding in secret and shaking in their boots, thinking that the, 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 the governors and the, and, the, uh, warrior and the soldiers were going to come after them. That was the moment when it looked like all was lost, and bam, redemption, victory over Satan and death. The crushing blow to the scene of the serpent, to the serpent's head. And now in Jesus Christ, the hero by which all heroes are based upon, God's people can say, where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? God's people can say, yes, God judged the world before in a flood, and he's coming to judge the world again with fire. But we, we have a hero. A hero unlike the Nephilim who could not save humanity. A hero who has redeemed us and saved us. And we will come through that judgment to the other side, to a new heavens and a new earth. Not because of what we've done, but because we trusted in the one who accomplished it. On our behalf. Because we have the right hero. Final point. Grace is given. Verse 5 through 8. Tells us that after these 120 years. The Lord came and he assessed. His creation. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Sin and corruption have reached a great climax. Depravity has taken hold. The 120 years of grace and time for humanity to repent have now passed. People have not repented. The depravity has only increased. And so we get a God's eye view of the state of his creation. In the opening chapter of Genesis, God reviewed his own activity. 
He saw his own creation and everything that he had created, and he said it was good, 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 very good. Now God reviews the deeds and actions of men. And what he saw was pervasive wickedness, down to the very center of their being. The mouthful that is, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, screams that we have totally lost it. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, what we see is a rapid progression of total depravity throughout humanity. In fact, I named the sermon this morning, that escalated quickly because from Genesis 1, Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, we don't think that much time has passed, but if you know how long people were living in those days, if you know that this was uh, uh, quite a bit of time, it's not necessarily that it happened like, it just narratively feels like that to us. Nonetheless, what we see is an increase of corruption throughout humanity down to its very core. And what we read about this assessment that God has, verse 6 and 7, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for, my, for I am grieved that I have made them. This verse is, these two verses, they're, I believe, a mystery that we have to hold in tension. For we do know that God is um, immutable. He does not change. Uh, we confess as, as Christians that God... Um, is impassable. He doesn't have passions. His emotions are not like the emotions of the Greek pantheon. Some human does something that makes him really mad and he just goes off. And then next thing, he's falling in love with another human. It, God is not like that. His emotions don't fluctuate and, and change. But we read here that, that God is grieved and that his heart was filled with pain. And that he regretted making mankind. And so how are we to make sense of that? Well, what's important to know about verse 6 is the use of words to describe the state of God. Moses, writing here, seeks to express what cannot be expressed with words in order to make them understandable to a human audience. Is it true that God grieves? Is it true that he, he repented? That he was sorry that he made mankind? That his heart was filled with pain? Almost as if we're reading this and we're, and we're saying to ourselves, God, you didn't know this was going to happen. You did not ordain for this to happen, that this came to this point, and now you're saying, whoops, got to wipe it out and start over again. And God does not have a body like we do. He does not have a heart like we do. God doesn't have emotions like we do, always fluctuating, always changing. We should be thankful for that. And I can logic chop this up for you. I can say this is not saying that God changed his mind or repented, but rather it's expressing analogically that, that he's displeased and disquieted by the path of humanity's development and their progression towards wickedness and violence, and, and that the attribution of emotions like sorrow, pain, and grief to God is what is called an anthropopathism. 
So what an anthropomorphism is, is when God has attributed features like an eye or like an arm or a hand, right? The hand of God, the right hand of God. But an anthropopathism is where God has attributed emotions like sorrow or grief. And the judgment that God promised in 120 years, if they did not repent in verse 3, is now described in detail by God himself. I can tell you that. I can say this is an anthropopathism. This is a description of God having emotions, even though we know God doesn't have emotions. But what I'm saying here really is that there's a mystery here. A tension here that we have to keep. We don't really understand. We don't really understand. But I think the best way that I can help us grasp this is that there is a moment in the life of Jesus when he looks over the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, that you would have repented. That you would have turned from your wickedness. I would have brought you in. And it's my desire that you would have. I would have brought you in and covered you. But you would not. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, did not God ordain that Jerusalem, that the Jews would be hardened, their hearts would be hardened against the Messiah, so that he would be crucified, and that, and you know, doesn't that make sense? Or, 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 or put it this way: God says that he, his desire is not to destroy the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and repent. What I'm trying to say is that there is a tension here, a mystery here, and what's being told about God's will, God's expression. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to have all the logical answers to be able to grasp the fact that in some way God is displeased with his creation. That God is showing here the sorrow of seeing his people made in his image turn to wickedness. Keep that tension. Mystery is the lifeblood of theology. And so God says he's going to destroy all living creatures on the earth. The expression white mankind means erase, annihilate, expunge completely. The fact that God intends to wipe out the other creatures alongside humanity tells us that mankind's sin has cosmic implications. The creatures were part of mankind's dominion and kingdom. And that dominion has now been ruined because of humanity's fall into utter wickedness and depravity. And so if the humans are not going to be there to care for the animals, then the animals have to be wiped out as well. Let's just say at the end of verse 7 is what I'm calling the moment in the monolith, the hero's story, right? When it looks as if all is lost, when we're saying, when everything looks lost, when the, when the hero of the story, the protagonist, is on the ground, he's been defeated. <clears throat> he's Rocky Balboa, and he just got knocked out, and the countdown is coming. One, two, it looks like it's over. 
I mean, it doesn't get much worse than God declaring the 120 years for humanity to repent is up. Your hearts are so wicked and evil. I'm going to destroy you all. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. It's over. And maybe you'd be saying to yourself, wow, Genesis 1 to 6, that would be a much shorter Bible to have to go through in my one-year reading plan. But that's not the end, is it? Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amidst all this impending judgment, there is still grace. In the midst of great judgment and wrath, God preserves the line of the woman, the seed of the woman, through Noah. God bestows his grace, his favor on Noah. What we need to understand here is that Noah did not find favor in the eyes of the Lord because of his righteousness, but in fact, God gave Noah his grace. The construction of the sentence indicates that the giving of grace did not occur at this point in verse 8 of Genesis 6, but came prior to it. Did God give Noah grace because of Noah's righteousness, or was it God's grace that produced Noah's righteousness? The sentence tells us that it reflects a state that Noah is already in. The final sentence has a subject coming before the verb in Hebrew. The verse then is describing that Noah is in a state of grace. God will preserve the world through judgment through a man whom he has preserved. What we find here is that God's decreating involves a redemptive recreating so that his original ultimate kingdom purposes for creation can be realized so that his salvation of Noah through the flood would become an archetype, a monomyth, the redemption of Jesus Christ. When all looks lost, God gives more grace. And God will see his redemptive plan come to fruition. He will see Christ come to redeem humanity and creation. And it's in those moments of history. Those moments of history when it looks the darkest. When it seems as if God is going to give up on his creation. Or wipe us out. When judgment is about to come, it's impending that we see God's favor, God's grace is given, and God's great redemptive work beginning anew. So my prayer for you this morning, all of you, is that you would know that when all looks lost, God gives more grace. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who is the greater Noah, the son of Adam, the second Adam, the one who would come to redeem us from the judgment that is to come in the future. By receiving the judgment he received on the cross. 
May we place our trust in him. When we know, may we know, Lord, that in times when all looks lost, your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ tells us that you are at work. You give more grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.